the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our O sacred heart of Jesus, the Immaculate Heart of Mary, St. Pius the Tenth, St. Pius the Fifth, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. <coughs> I'd like to welcome you back for our third installment on modernism. <laughs> and as you see, we've enlarged the room for the large crowd. <laughs> In the last uh, talk that I gave, I began our historical analysis of modernism to go through the history of what happened and present to you some of the chief characters, if you will, of the modernist movement. And we're going to continue that tonight. But I'd like to just review. Uh, in the last conference, we, we talked about during the, the reign of Pope St. Pius X. And I mentioned to you that besides his promulgation of the encyclical Pascendi Dominici Gregis, in which he condemned modernism. I also told you how he had organized the modernist thought in that encyclical. But in addition to that, he issued a decree called Lamentabili, in which he condemned 65 modernist propositions. He also instituted the oath against modernism that every priest, everyone who's ordained to the priesthood, anyone consecrated a bishop, anyone who is to become a seminary professor or even to teach in certain universities had to take the oath against modernism. He also established, I mentioned, the anti-modernist network. The anti-modernist network, which was overseen by the uh, 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 Monsignor in the Secretariat of State in the Vatican, uh, was a network, an organization of certain priests and theologians around the entire world, as it were, who were reading books, who were reading newspapers, who were looking through theological journals, looking for modernism. They were attending parish churches, listening to sermons, listening to professors' lectures on theology, just looking for modernism. And anyone who was suspect of modernism had a file in the Vatican that they were suspect of modernism. And did you know that... Uh, Father uh, Angelo Roncalli, who later became John XXIII, had a file in the Vatican when he was a priest. He was a professor of theology at a Roman university. There was a file on him in the Vatican that said suspect of modernism. We'll talk about him in the future. So this is what was going on during the reign of Pius X, this anti-modernist network. Despite, I said, the criticism and the hatred of modernist priests and sympathizers, and especially the press, 
was so effective that it truly, if I could use the word, neutralized the modernist movement. Now, St. Pius X died on August the 20th in 1914. World War I had just broke out. He was succeeded, I said, by Cardinal Giacomo Battista della Chiesa, who became Pope Benedict XV. And I made a few remarks about Benedict XV in my last talk. I don't want to go back into that in detail now. But Benedict XV was elected on September the 3rd, 1914. And while it seems he was not a modernist, he was no St. Pius X. He did canonize St. Joan of Arc. He canonized St. Margaret Mary. He became Pope while Europe was torn apart by a war that the world had never yet seen in its entire 6,000-year history. For World War I was a war unlike any other war. At the end of that war, about 20 million people would be dead. In his defense, certain biographers tell us his pontificate was consumed with the war. And although he did not condemn modernism by name, in his encyclical letter, Ad Beatissimi Apostolorum, he did state in there that he refused to lift the excommunication on certain modernist priests that his predecessor had excommunicated. He was petitioned to lift the excommunication on certain priests. He refused to do it. But he was not St. Pius X, and he did have some liberal tendencies. He maintained the oath against modernism. He insisted, as St. Pius X had stated, that priests and seminary professors would take this oath against modernism. Here was his fatal mistake. Here's where he lacked the insight of a Pope St. Pius X. He called the anti-modernist network an excess. He called it excessive. And he did it in. He put an end to the anti-modernist network of priests, theologians who were watching. They were like watchdogs watching, as I said, theological journals, classrooms, parishes, university lecture halls. Benedict XV put an end to it. Do you remember I told you in the last conference that that anti-modernist network was overseen by a certain Monsignor in the Vatican who reported directly to Cardinal Mary Delval, who was St. Pius X's Secretary of State. 
And Benedict XV did not like Cardinal Mary Delvin. So, when he relaxed this, he actually gave them a breather. He gave modernist priests and sympathizers a breather. He gave them a chance, as it were, to regroup, to reorganize. Cardinal Murray Dalval who was after the death of St. Pius X and the election of Benedict XV, because as soon as the Pope dies, the Secretary of State for that Pope is no longer holding the office. When Pius X died and Benedict XV was elected, Cardinal Raphael Mary Delval really became kind of an outcast from the Vatican. He was the uh, rector domo of St. Peter's Basilica. He was the priest, archpriest of St. Peter's Basilica. But he really didn't do anything overly important, as it were, as he did before under Pius X. And there is a letter that is extant today... There's a letter extant today that Cardinal Mary Delvell wrote to this man, William Cardinal O'Connell, who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Boston till his death in 1944. He and Cardinal Mary Delvell became good friends because O'Connell, before he was made a bishop, was the rector of the North American College in Rome. That's the seminary in Rome that American students would go to study. And usually if they studied at the North American College, they came back here and were eventually made monsignors and bishops. Cardinal O'Connell became very close friends with Delval when he was in Rome. And Cardinal Murray Delval wrote him a letter dated November 4th, 1921 in which the Cardinal stated to O'Connell that he had grave concerns about the direction which the church was moving. This is 1921. These are Cardinal Mary Delval's own words from that letter. He said, We are drifting. How far we may drift, I dread to think. And how hard it will be later on to get back to our safe tracks if we are to regain what we have lost. Pope Benedict XV died on January 22nd, 1922. He was succeeded by Achille Cardinal Rati, who took the name of Pius XI. Pius XI did very good things for the church. 
He wrote some very excellent encyclical letters addressing the moral evils of the day. I've mentioned one of these encyclical letters to you already named Mortalium Animos, which is his encyclical condemning false ecumenism. He also wrote an encyclical called Casti Canubi, which is the encyclical letter on Christian marriage. And in that encyclical letter, he clearly states that artificial contraception is intrinsically evil. And if something is intrinsically evil, it can never be done. Now, I'm just going to jump ahead a little bit here. As I say, Pius XI stated there, artificial contraception is intrinsically evil. It can never be done. 1960s, there was this big movement. There was, as if it were, a cloud of confusion on priests, on even certain Catholic bishops, on lay people, about the question of whether artificial contraception was acceptable. Paul VI, I'm going to make it, make it short here, Paul VI basically said, we're going to study this question. We're going to study this question, he said. And year and year and year went by. And finally, in 1970, some of you may recall, he published his encyclical letter, Humane Vitae, which the new church, conservative people in the new church, hold up as the uh, last bastion of Catholic morality. And here it is right here. Look at Paul VI did. It was already too late. It was already, Bishop Kelly told me when he was a seminarian in Huntington, Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington, he wasn't, a, he wasn't in the deacon class yet, but he said the deacons would go out every weekend and they would assist in a parish church somewhere on Long Island. And they would come back for class on Monday. And they would often share their experiences with the younger seminarians. And Bishop Kelly told me this one particular deacon came back and told him that he, he was invited by the pastor since he was there in this church on Long Island somewhere. Bishop Kelly wasn't sure where the church was. But the pastor met with the curates, that is the assistant priests in the house, in the rectory, and the deacon was there too. And the pastor said, this question is settled. Now, this was just before Humane Vitae. This was like 1968. But the pastor said, the question is settled on artificial contraception. They can do it. You are not to stop them. You are not to condemn it. You are to absolve them if they come to the confession. They can do it. That's how bad it is. I don't believe that's an isolated case. 
So when Paul VI came out in 1970, it was already too late. And I bring this up now because, as I said, Pius XI stated already there was no question, there was no confusion. He said it was intrinsically evil. And he wasn't making that up. He was restating what the attitude, the mind, the teaching of the church had always been. So Humane Vitae was destructive. It was destructive. Then he comes out later. And then he also comes out after the big reaction to it. And he says, so you'll remember this, many of you, when he said, the smoke of Satan has entered the church. Right? He started the smoke, as it were. Very interesting to note, though, my final comments on this here, is that some of you may have remember Cardinal Patrick O'Boyle, who was the Cardinal Archbishop of Washington, D.C. And he was also the rector of Catholic University of America. He had a young priest teaching there called Father Charles Curran. Charles Curran was teaching moral theology at Catholic University of America, and he was teaching that artificial contraception is perfectly acceptable. And he wouldn't stop. He clashed with Cardinal O'Boyle constantly. Some of you may remember Father Francis Fenton. I heard a talk Father Fenton had given years ago. Father Fenton was one of the first traditional priests in the country. And Father Fenton's talking and he says, Charles Curran, moral theologian. And he says, immoral theologian. Because that's what he was. He was an immoral theologian. After Humane Vitae was published in 1970, Cardinal O'Boyle went to Curran and showed him the document and said, you will conform. Curran refused. O'Boyle fired him. Fired him from Catholic University of America. Charles Curran then uh, pleaded his cause with the Vatican. The Holy Office. The Holy Office is one of the Roman congregations that assists the Pope in ruling the entire church. The Holy Office is led by the Pope himself. Current appeal to the Holy Office against O'Boyle, the Holy Office upheld Charles Curran, and he was reinstated by the Holy Office to teach at Catholic University of America. Cardinal O'Boyle but it simply walked away with like egg all over his face. He was humiliated. He was basically done after that. How could they do that? Very simply, they're modernists. That's how they can do it. So I didn't want to go too off on the topic here, but the fact that Pius XI had stated in Costi Canubii that artificial contraception is intrinsically evil, there was no need to study it. A condemnation could have come out immediately. But because they didn't, and they said we have to study the question, you had confusion, and then you had the enemies of God push their agenda. 
How many times do you hear a priest or a bishop today condemn artificial contraception? They won't. If they do, they're out. They're out. So Pius XI did state that in that encyclical on Christian marriage. There was no mistake about it. Pius XI also wrote an encyclical on what is true Catholic education. He wrote an encyclical letter titled Divini Redemptoris. This was an explicit condemnation of atheistic communism. In which Pius XI stated that no one who would dare save Christianity could ever in any way collaborate with atheistic communists. And of course, I must mention, in 1925, he published the encyclical letter, Quas Primus, in which he established the Feast of Christ the King in the Church, which we celebrate every year on the last Sunday of October. He certainly seemed a good pope, But still, under him, modernism was slowly bouncing back from the heavy blow that Pius X had dealt it. Pius XI's Secretary of State, the beginning of his pontificate, was Cardinal Gaspari. Remember I talked to you about Cardinal Gaspari last month with very liberal tendencies? Another one who despised, as it were, Cardinal Mary Delval. Pius XII later became Pius XI's Secretary of State. I should say Cardinal Pacelli later after Gaspari was too old and had to retire. But as good things as he did, and as I say, he did some very good things, still, modernism was creeping back, very slowly. There's no doubt, and we would all agree on this, that the greatest hope of the 20th century was indeed Pope St. Pius X. On March 2nd, 1939, Eugenio Cardinal Pacelli was elected Pope, taking the name of Pius XII. As you see, he was crowned by Cardinal Ottaviani, whom we will have much to talk about him later. Pius XII had been consecrated a bishop on May 13, 1917, by Pope Benedict XV. Before his episcopal consecration, he served in the office of the Vatican Secretary of State. 
He was a young Monsignor, and he often assisted Cardinal Mary Delval, whom he once referred to as one of his mentors. But during the reign of Pius XII, modernism comes to the surface. In the early 1940s, three French Jesuit theologians, all Jesuits, the first is here, Father Jean Danielou, Father Henri de Dubac, and Father Henri Bouillard. These three theologians began promoting in the lecture hall of the universities they taught theology in and in various journals of theology throughout France and Europe what they called a new understanding of theology. They were pushing a change in the nature of theology. And incidentally, all three of them were personally invited by John XXIII to be experts at Vatican II. In fact, uh, Daniel Lu and Lubach were actually made cardinals before they died. John Paul II, in particular, made Henri de Lubac, who lived to be like, you saw, like 90-something years old. He made Lubac a cardinal as a reward for his great service to the church and theology. But these three theologians were pushing this Need, they said, for a new understanding of theology. They had a French word for it. I was going to write it on the board here, and I didn't put it in my thing here. The French word is ressourcement. R-E-S-S-O-U-R-C-E-M-E-N-T. Ressourcement. And that French word simply means the return. The full title of their ressourcement was this in English. A return to the sources of theology. This is very important to understand this. That was the name of their ressourcement a return to the sources of theology. So our question is, what does that mean? A return to the sources of theology. What they meant was that we have to go back 
to pure sacred scripture and the writings of the fathers of the church. St. Augustine, St. Jerome, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Great, St. Leo the Great, the great fathers of the church in those first few hundred years of the early life of the church. We have to go back to that on how we teach theology. Sacred scripture, writings of the fathers of the church. That's the return to the sources of theology. Now, that doesn't sound so bad at all, right? Why wouldn't you go back to St. Augustine, right? What's wrong with that, we may think? Well, here's the problem. That wasn't all of it. They wanted to return as they claimed, I say claimed, to the scriptures and to the fathers to study theology. Even as they wanted to take St. Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologica and throw it in the trash. They wanted to dump St. Thomas. One author describing their ressourcement said this, These three theologians were dissatisfied with Thomism. Their goal was to undo the hegemony of Thomism. Hegemony means a preponderant influence or authority. Very simply put, they wanted to dethrone St. Thomas Aquinas as the prince of theologians. And his Summa Theologica, by which all Catholic priests study theology based on the Summa, he is the church's theologian. In the name of going back to the scriptures then, and the fathers of the church, it was all just a facade to get rid of St. Thomas. When someone despises St. Thomas, when somebody has a problem with St. Thomas and his theology, watch out. Watch out. Pope Leo XIII, in his encyclical letter, Eterni Patris, in 1879, put St. Thomas Aquinas back in his rightful place in the church. 1879, less than a year that that man had been elected pope. He said there is a need for a return to the study of theology according to St. Thomas. And he said priests will study theology henceforth according to St. Thomas. Even as he encouraged the use of St. Thomas's philosophy to solve all the world's problems at that time. The economic problems, the political problems, the social problems. He said we could take St. Thomas's philosophy, which he said has eternal principles, so to speak. And by that he meant you can apply the philosophy of St. Thomas to every age of the world. 
He said, this must be done. And it was under Leo XIII that a movement in the church began called Neo-Thomism. And he appointed a French cardinal, Cardinal Mercier, to head that. The Code of Canon Law of 1917, with its promulgation, made it a law in the church. That theology was to be taught according to the method of St. Thomas Aquinas in all seminaries. Nineteen forties. This movement begins by certain theologians in France to take St. Thomas Aquinas, his theology, and even his philosophy, and get rid of it in the name of going back to the study of theology according to Scripture and the fathers of the church. Very ensnaring, very tricky, but that's what the modernists are. They are sneaky. I think that's the best word to describe them. They are sneaky. Their movement, Ressourcement, won over not just a few priests, but it won over some theologians and a bishop or two who either were modernists themselves or couldn't see the snare. They couldn't see it. It sounded good. As I said, any, if anyone has a problem with St. Thomas and his theology, watch out. Because I think I might have mentioned to you, one of the 16th century Protestant reformers, Zwingli, who was the founder of the Anabaptist sect, he declared, take away Thomas and I will destroy the church. Martin Luther hated St. Thomas Aquinas. John Calvin despised him. St. Thomas was a thorn in the side of Protestantism. And thus, it a thorn. St. Thomas is a thorn in the side of modernism. So this movement begins, and priests are being deceived. Even bishops are being deceived. Modernists are smooth talkers. They know how to make a presentation. But there arose in the 1940s a Catholic priest and theologian who stopped them, as it were, in their tracks. Reverend Father Gary Goulagrange. I've mentioned his name in past conferences already. Gary Lagrange was, in my opinion, the greatest Thomistic theologian and philosopher of the 20th century. He was a Thomist through and through. He loved God, he loved the faith, and he truly lived his Dominican spirituality. He saw this 
return to the sources of theology for what it truly was. If I may mention on the side as well, there was a Jesuit priest in the United States, I believe the Diocese of Boston, who saw this return to theology for what it was as well. Nothing more than modernism. But this Jesuit priest in the Boston Diocese came up with what he called his linchpin doctrine that must be promoted, that would put an end to all this. And it was the dogma of faith that outside the church there is no salvation. This priest went on to actually fall into heresy and error. His name is Father Leonard Feeney. And his, re- his response to the modernism, he went the opposite extreme. He fell into heresy and error. The heresy of Father Feeney was this. He said that a soul could be put into the state of sanctifying grace by the baptism of desire, but at death it will go to hell. Because it's either water or damnation, he said. That is directly contradictory to the infallible teaching of the Council of Trent, which declared that a soul in the state of sanctifying grace has a right to go to heaven. And God cannot say no. And Feeney said that baptism of water, he said, puts a soul in the state of sanctifying grace, but that soul can never be saved. It will be damned, he said, for all eternity. That's heretical. That's his heresy. Gary Lou Lagrange, he was the enemy, the arch enemy of modernism. He was the arch enemy of this new movement, which was modernism under the another name. In 1946, Father Gary Lagrange published an article called Where is the New Theology Leading Us? It was published originally in French. I'm not going to try to say that whole French thing for you. This was 1946. This was published at Rome in a theological journal that was put out by the Angelicum University in Rome. The article is lengthy. It is rather involved. It's not easy spiritual reading. It must be read slowly and thoughtfully. But I can tell you this, you can get copies of this article and you can read it, and I believe you will be able to understand based on what we've already talked about with modernism and see what he has to say. This article was Gary Gulagran's triumph over those theologians. Because he concludes the end of the article with these words. 
He says, where is this new theology going with its new masters who inspire it? Where is it going? If not the way of skepticism and heresy, the new theology is going back to modernism. And thus, he exposed them for what they really were. They were modernists. Jean-Daniel Lou, Henri de Lubac, and Henri Bouillard, and others like them, were nothing more than modernists. In fact, Henri Bouillard actually said that the theology of St. Thomas is a false theology because it doesn't belong to the present age. Now, is that not modernism? It didn't evolve into the present age is what he's trying to say. The theology of St. Thomas, it's outdated. It's a broken theology, he said. It's done. But Gary Goulagrange, faithful to the church and the teachings of St. Thomas, demonstrated in his article where the new theology is leading us. He demonstrated that the theology of St. Thomas was thoroughly Catholic and superior to this new theology, which was nothing more than modernism. That's Gary Goo's fighting look. <laughs> That's when he was at war with them. Interesting to note in some of the research I did that there were actual vocal debates between those Jesuit priests and their followers and certain Catholic Dominican priests in France. They were publicly debating this. But what I found very interesting is the superior of the Dominican order would not let Gary Goulagrange participate in those public debates. He wanted to. They would not let him. They were afraid, as a certain biographer said, that he would only increase tension and foster personal hostilities. So they wouldn't let him come. He would have hammered them all. If there were a hammer of heretics in the 20th century, it was Gary Goulibarich. That's just how much they hated him. How much they despised him. He really was a saintly man. He did not take this controversy personally and become passionate and enraged with anger. He just spoke the truth. They were filled with passion and anger and even hatred. Do you know one of the things they, how they responded to him? They made fun of his Latin. The theology journals were usually written in Latin. They said his Latin was baby Latin. 
They were writing in a more flowery, classical Latin language. That's the only thing they had on them, as it were. But I've looked, if you've seen Gary Goo's books in Latin, that's not really baby Latin. <laughs> that's what people do when they do not have the truth, they resort to a personal attack. For example, if you're familiar with the debates that went on between Martin Luther in the 16th century and the Catholic theologian whose name was John von Eck. No one really talks about John von Eck today. John von Eck uh, if I could use the expression, buried Luther. John von Eck put up such a defense of the Catholic faith and an attack on Luther that Luther, at the end of the debates, would always end by personally insulting him, using the most foul language at the time. In fact, John von Eck said to Martin Luther that your, your doctrine, faith alone, is not in sacred scripture like you say it is. I may have told you this already, but Luther said, God, Epistle of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 28, is where he said, St. Paul says, by faith alone we are saved. The word alone does not even appear in that text. And John von Eck pointed that out to Luther. The word alone is not here. He said it's not in the Vulgate. That's the Latin Bible. And von Eck also had the Greek manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. He said it's not even here. So he said to Luther, where did this come from? And Luther said, Dr. Luther, wills it so. Meaning it's there because I want it to be there. And then he went on to say, the word alone is there, just as the word uh, pope, and then he made a vulgar expression. The word papist and vulgar expression are the same thing. And then he began to insult one. People who, just, who do not have the truth when they know they have lost, as it were, they resort to personal attacks, and that's what they did to Gary Goulibranch. It was a personal attack on him. It was this article, though, where the new theology is leading us that actually moved Pope Pius XII to take a stand. On August 12, 1950, Pius XII took an official side in this debate, if you will. He published an encyclical letter called Humani Generis. And in that encyclical letter, he condemned the new theology of the three French Jesuits in particular, I mentioned, its doctrines and its tendencies. This is what he wrote in the encyclical. I'm just going to read you a little uh, passage here. 
He said, we charge, he's speaking with his authority, we charge the bishops and the superiors of religious orders, binding them most seriously in conscience to take most diligent care that such opinions be not advanced in schools, conferences, or in writings of any kind. This is a very serious charge. He says, we charge bishops and superiors of religious orders, binding them most seriously in conscience. He's obliging them under pain of sin, as the Holy Father can, that they take diligent care that such opinions, that is, all these modern errors that are contained in this new theology, are not to be taught in schools, conferences, writings of any kind. He says, he concludes by saying, they are not to be taught in any manner whatsoever to the clergy or the faithful. Pius Twelfth thus condemned the new theology, Ressourcement. He condemned it in its doctrine. Have you ever read Humani Generis? I... For a while, I was trying to read it once a year just to review it, because it's such a wonderful encyclical. He condemned the new theology. He condemned its doctrines. He condemned its tendencies, because remember we said modernism is doctrine and tendencies. And he obliged bishops and superiors under pain of mortal sin to be diligent and watchful in their opposition to it. A certain Dominican priest commenting on Humani Generis said this. He said, for some 15 years, official church policy since the promulgation of Humani Generis worked to hold back the development in theology envisioned by men like Delu Bach and Daniel Lu. And by the way, this Dominican priest I'm quoting, this is a book he wrote. He's a, he's a priest of the new church. And he published a book, I can't think of his, oh, his name is Petticord. He's an American Dominican named Petticord. He published a book called The Sacred Monster of Thomism. The book is about Gary Goulagrange. And I know the title sounds offensive at first, but it's actually by Monster. He meant to say a man who was all about, he actually has a regard and a respect for Gary Goulagrange in the book. And he writes in the preface, I've recently rediscovered Gary Goulagrange. And then he goes into his life and his, his struggle against the modernists. But he says that for 15, almost 15 years, from the time that Humani Generis was published, the church held back developments in theology envisioned by men like Delu Bach and Daniel Lu. He goes on to say, through the intervention of an assertive holy office and the collaboration 
of theologians like Gary Goulagrange, the fears of Pope Pius XII did not see the light of day. In other words, what he's saying here, through the intervention of the Holy Office, Pius XII was head of the Holy Office, but the cardinal who ran the Holy Office under Pius XII was Alfredo Cardinal Ottaviani. And he was, if I could use the expression, an iron-fisted safeguard of, because the Holy Office is about safeguarding faith and morals. And he kept it safe. Between Ottaviani and the Holy Office, and between theologians like Gary Goulagrange, the new theology was held back. It was put in check. But I have to say this. Though it was put in check by Pius XII, it was not a heavy blow like Pius X gave to it. They were certainly restrained to a great degree. In fact, after the promulgation of Humani Generis, it is said, it is said that Gary Goulagrange was seen walking through, right, Bob? <laughs> walking through the halls of the Angelicum University holding six scalps. Daniel Lu, Bouillard, De Lubac, and three others. That he was victorious. He had defeated them. Up until 1958, Henri De Lubac would refer to the 1950s as the dark years of the church. De Lubac uh, died in 1991. He died at the age of 95. As I mentioned, he, he was never consecrated a bishop, but John Paul II made him a cardinal in 1987. John Paul II stated at Lubac's death that Lubac was a man of rare theological genius. Heaven help us. I'm sorry, St. John Paul. <laughs> Modernists, or those who adhere to this so-called new theology as they were calling it, to put a disguise on it, were put into check. They were caught. De Lubac, for example, was removed from his teaching position all his books were condemned and pulled out of universities and seminaries. But the modernists are resilient. And if modernists have one virtue, they have patience. They can wait. Even the devil, so to speak, has patience, so to speak. He will wait. He might wait 20 years just to plot somebody's destruction. But he'll move pieces here and there in that direction. And the modernists pulled back. Yeah, they were, they were hit with a rod a few times. 
but they were going to wait. In their resiliency and their cunning, they were waiting for their man to be put on the chair of Peter. Because Pius XII was not their man. Pius XII took a lot of criticism, by the way, when he infallibly defined the dogma of the Assumption of Our Lady into heaven. There were some priests and theologians, perhaps even a bishop or two, who told him, don't do this. And there there was an outcry from a number of Protestant churches that Pius XII, so to speak, is plunging the Catholic Church back into the Middle Ages by this infallible definitions. But he did it. He issued then Humani Generis. He defined the dogma of the Assumption. But you know what he said was the most important act of his entire pontificate? 1954 when he canonized Pope St. Pius X. He called that the most important act of his pontificate. He died October 9th, 1958. And in the papal conclave that followed, a type of man long sought by modernists was elected Pope. Angelo Cardinal Roncalli took the name of course of John the Twenty Third. And in our next conference we will begin our series on Vatican II. And we will see we will talk about John the 23rd, or as he's been called, Good Pope John. We will talk about Vatican II. We will talk about Paul VI. We will go into the scene behind Vatican II and who were the ones who got this thing going and what they talked about. We're going to look at the documents of Vatican II and I'm going to give you, I'm going to show you the documents of what Vatican II taught and its 16 documents and what it changed. What Catholic teaching or practice it changed. And after that, we're going to get into the wake of Vatican II.